greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards has her tool belt on and is building up that Sound Health portal. You can go to the soundhealthportal.com now. Well, not now, after the show, maybe. Look at services and then look at campaigns. And there are a number of free campaigns that you can go and do, do two 45-second recordings from your computer and submit them for, I think they're doing neuroplasticity, PTSD, and a couple of others that I just can't, my, I don't think it's bio diet. Uh, well, just go to soundhealthportal.com, click on services, and then see what campaigns are available now. And the campaigns, they run for a period of time, and then they change them out to another campaign where you can submit your vocal print, which is a vocal, just a voice recording, and then it runs through the software and analyzes it and figures out what's going on in the imbalances in your voice and shows, in the case of neuroplasticity, what's going on in your brain and how things are interacting and what might be out of balance. And, oh, I didn't know that. And the reports are quite robust, so you can sit down with tea or coffee of your choice and read them and or take them to your health care practitioner and have a fun conversation. It's really stupendous. I love the Sound Health Portal. I will say, and I, and I say this exact same thing every week, and it's true even more so today, our guest, Oren Nadrich, really a mindfulness maven. I'm not sure she'll like that, but <laughs> I'll try that for now. Is really, it's such a wonderful conversation. Her book, Live True, A Mindfulness Guide to Authenticity. Mindfulness, I've, in some circles, is underrated, and I think it's so powerful. It so could make everything better. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. You can find a replay of this show after you hear the extra music at soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio. And you'll find the replay there in about 15 minutes after I end. And or maybe 30 minutes after, you can go to any of the podcast aggregators, which means iTunes or Dogcatcher or Pocket Casts or Google Podcasts is coming around quite nicely. And there are numerous options, but those are some of my favorites. And search for Sherry Edwards and any of the over seven, almost 700 hours of shows will show up and this will be at the top. And it's going to be one of those that you're going to want to listen to again and or share with your friends because mindfulness is such a powerful, mm, I'll say it's such a powerful tool to add to the quiver of life. Orin Nadrich is the founder and president of the Institute for Transformational Thinking. She's a thought coach and mindful meditation teacher, as well as the author of the groundbreaking book, Says Who? How One Simple Question Can Change the Way You Think Forever and Live True, a Mindfulness Guide to Authenticity. Aura's rare combination of insight, intuition, compassion, and charisma has made her one of the most effective and sought-after coaches in Los Angeles. Her work has been featured in Women's Health Magazine, Consciousness Life Magazine, Fast Company, Success Magazine, Spirituality and Health, Elevated Existence, NBC News, Health Magazine, and more. Her unique method, which has guided her clients to unlock the strength and promise within, allowing them to deal with the fears and obstacles that have held them back, has thus been successful in helping hundreds of people reach their desires and reach their goals. Aura joins us to talk about her latest book, Live True, A Mindfulness Guide to Authenticity. Welcome, Aura. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Because we're both, you're especially being mindful and I'm striving toward it, I'm going to ask a very sideways question. Do you think that it's possible that when we lived in caves, we were more mindful, more in the moment? That's such a good question. You know, I think that, and I've referred, you know, at different times going back to, you know, other times and places. And if we go back to, let's say, the time of the hunter and gatherer, you know, one could probably imagine us being much more present because our survival was very much threatened or at risk, if you will. You know, we were perhaps more conscious of the possibility of a saber-toothed tiger jumping out of nowhere, some kind of wild animal. And it really was survival of the fittest. 
you know, at that point. You know, we had to survive. So, you know, when our survival is most threatened, perhaps we have to be on high alert. And by being on high alert, we are, in fact, more present. So that's what we really want to bring into the modern day age, the 21st century, if you will, you know, not to replicate the consciousness of the, you know, the caveman, but, you know, we, we need some work to do on raising our consciousness and heightening our awareness because we're so bombarded with so much today. So that's a good question, you know, as far as the comparison, if you will, of what that time proposed and what this time does. Right. I don't think caveman, now I've, it's mostly, it's all from reading in too many movies, but I have the feeling that the cavemen were never thinking, I wonder if I'm going to be eaten by a tiger tomorrow. I don't think that was, it was very much, I'm here right. now. I want, to, I want to go out. I want to get food. I want to not get killed while I'm getting food. And I want to come back to the cave. And I think that was kind of it. Is it raining? It's not yeah. raining good. Yeah. So it's very uh, high stress situations. I think will be, later on, I might be talking about PTSD and, and veterans. We've done a lot right. of work, Sherry's done a lot of work with veterans, and they're very much in the moment because you have to be in the moment. There isn't, you don't have right. an option of, oh my goodness, what's somebody saying about me on Twitter? But that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so true. When did you start meditating? Well, I started to meditate. Um, I was about 20 years old, and I had embarked on a career as an actress at that time. And, you know, I feel like my path has always been guided. You know, I call it a lot of divine providence in that I do believe that, you know, if we really free fall into our instincts, our intuition, and we allow ourselves to remain open, we will either lead ourselves to where we need to be or be led to it. And for me, I didn't have an awareness of meditation at the time, but what I was aware of is that I wanted to use some type of um, application or skill, if you will, to you know, maintain a level of calmness because being an actress, you're, you know, it's, it can be a very stressful, uh, career. And I was introduced to transcendental meditation at the time. And I just took to it like a duck to water. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I was very, uh, it was very resonant for me. And for anybody that knows, you know, Transcendental Meditation, TM, it's a meditation that was introduced by Maharishi, a yogi who, you know, out of India, and then one of the most, I think, recognizable people that took to it were the Beatles. So this is going way back, where it became, you know, introduced into the Western world, if you will. And I benefited greatly from it, and I started to practice it diligently. They give you a Sanskrit mantra, and I found myself very committed to it back then, you know, and the way in which it is taught is 20 minutes twice a day. And so I really committed to it, and I started to see great results. It, it really helped me be more present, you know, and to be more calm and more accepting of the present moment. So that was really the beginning of, you know, mindfulness, if you will, the understanding of how to be present in, you know, a formal meditation, which was the sitting. And as you were, so you're in Hollywood, wow, um, and I can see why you'd want to be at peace in between that craziness. <laughs> right. And did you, did it, did it give you an immediate sense of um, relief is not quite the word I want, but I think I will use that from the stress of that? Or did it, is it something that slowly developed and you, and you felt more at ease when you were doing it and then it began to carry out into your moment-to-moment -moment existence where you found yourself able to be more mindful within your day, not just within the time of meditating, but actually it spilled out into your daily life? I think it's all of what you just described. You know, the introduction of it really opened up a whole new way of 
of thinking and being for me. It really was that, you know, set me on the path of awareness and how to apply these practices or these skill sets, which really become much more developed and strengthened by the more, you know, you practice them, obviously. So once I got a sense of that, you know, this works, it works to take the time in our day to make that concerted effort to practice something, whatever that is for you, that really counters the busyness or the chaos of the world. Do you know? So once I really got a sense of that, that became my delineated path, the path of mindfulness, the path of the contemplative you know, application into my, lo- into my daily life, if you will. Hmm. Hmm. I I used to be. Uh, I was a in the culinary world for twenty years. I was a chef. Oh, I love and the culinary world. That's a whole other show. <laughs> Anytime we can talk about that, I can talk yes. about food. I'm I'm not Anthony Moore, but Bourdain, but I can certainly talk about food for a long time. Oh, good. Okay, and, another show for sure. And one of the things that always. Am- surprised people. I, I remember the very first time I was cooking in on the Monterey Peninsula. That's where I started. And I was I never went to culinary school, but I trained under this what I call mean German. <laughs> and he was just really tough. That was really it. And we would just, I mean, we'd do sit-down catering. We had a full sit-down full restaurant, a classic continental restaurant. And also we did caterings for up to a thousand. So you have this amazing cacophony of activity. And yet, I remember the very first time I had some roommates come visit me at the restaurant, and they'd never seen me move so fast. And yet, if you're, you're the chef in the kitchen, you have to be so mindful. You, mm-hmm. have, to be on, you have to be hyper-focused on everything and a hundred things at a time. Mm-hmm. And it puts you very much into a mindfulness state I have no chef I very some chefs I know would have this conversation. Others would be looking at me like what are you talking about. Mm-hmm. But I mean it really does drive you into a place of mindfulness because when you're making a souffle or you're scrambling an egg or you're preparing, you know, some complicated dish or just even something simple like a perfect omelet, a brie omelet with watercress. To be have it be perfect, you have to get everything just right. And you have to be you know, fully in that moment. It's so true, and I'm, you know, aside from the fact that I also have a great affinity for the culinary, and I, I've always been drawn to that. I and I'm, I'm not a chef, but you know, the Cooking Channel is one of my favorite uh, channels, and you know, I have some shows that I happen to love. I love Chopped. I love Iron Chef. I mean, there's so many shows that I've watched for years. And I couldn't agree with you more, Richard, in that what's really fascinating about watching chefs in action is that the level of composure, the level of concentration, and this is a way to introduce mindfulness. You know, even though maybe chefs don't call themselves that. They don't say, oh, hey, I'm practicing mindfulness. But, you know, what I like to do is bring people into the awareness of what what does mindfulness look like? Do you know? Because it's so being talked about. It's so in the mainstream today, which I love. But what's really great in, in bringing people into the awareness of what it actually means other than just a definition is by showing ways in which we can practice mindfulness. And chefs really do that. They, they have to do it well, and especially I mention those shows because they're under a, a very intense time clock. They have to be so hypervigilant in their focus and their awareness of what they're doing. And, you know, whether you're watching a chef, whether you're watching an athlete, whether you're watching a, you know, uh, the Olympics, you know, a ballet, a concert, what you're really witnessing is you're really witnessing present moment awareness applied in those areas. Do you know you're you're really watching, you're witnessing people that are hyper focused, if you will. And that's what it takes for us to really align ourselves, I believe, with our greatest gifts. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing already because I know I, because of what I'm about to say. I can guarantee you, if you are not focused and mindful when you're poaching eggs, 
because there's just a moment between perfection and oops too far Mm-hmm. Uh, that you really, and it's a funny thing because I, I worked at a place where I did brunch many days a week and I cooked a bazillion eggs. And it really is, it's a funny thing how you you go into kind of a calm state of, it's not panic, but I mean, you as I say, you're monitoring a hundred things at once because you have to watch all, particularly if you're the lead chef. You have to watch everybody else on the line, so you have to kind of monitor what's going on. So if you see somebody doing something not right, you can say, that's too long, start over, or that's something like that. Teaching, mostly teaching, not so much yelling as teaching. Mm-hmm. But it really is an interesting being in the middle of cacophony, because to the, out, to the outside world, it often looks like, oh my God, <laughs> because it really is like that. It really is yes. like, oh my God, is this going to come together? The wheels right. full, and they've got a what? Um, right, and, and so, you can see that, you know, when chefs admit, you know, again, I'm using those shows as examples because I've watched sure. them, where when a chef really trips themselves up, you know, and then they're very honest, you know, and if you can just get out of the way of the ego, and they're like, you know, they admit that when they, they stepped out of that, that heightened state of awareness, you know, it, listen, it's challenging, that's why watching those shows I find very exciting because we don't normally live our lives like that. And it's really fascinating to watch people that are in those heightened states of awareness by the work that they're doing. And I have tremendous appreciation for that, that we can see how we can trip ourselves up and get out of the moment. And that's usually when we've, we've kind of stepped out of the alignment of that deep concentration do you know? And so it's such a great way to really, you know, look at how we can get out of the moment. And I basically say that everything we do is a meditation. So you know, Richard, as a chef, the practice of that is, is a true meditation. You know, when you're in the present moment of cooking and you're really, again, so hyper-focused, that becomes a meditation, and that's a lot of what I talk about in my work. I don't want people to think they just have to be sitting on a meditation pillow or a yoga mat. It's like meditation is in all the moments of our life and in all that we do. Well, well, and it's and I'll get off the cooking thing in just a moment. When, <laughs> for instance, now I like to get to, I don't cook professionally now, but I love to go to people's houses that have really great kitchens and and be entertained while cooking because it's people enjoy watching it because it's fun. And one of the things I point out to them is I look up from chopping an onion. While I'm chopping the onion, I can look up at that person and talk to them, and it freaks people out. Oh, wow. And it's not a performance thing. It's a thing where when you've had a knife in your hand for a couple thousand hours or more, easily more, uh-huh. you have a relationship. Even though you're talking to that person, you have a relationship to how the onion feels in your hand, where it is, the form, the shape, where your fingers are on it, and the feel of the blade against the back of your knuckles. If you're, if you're chopping or slicing properly, the back of the knife, the side of the knife is against your knuckles. So you always know exactly where it is. You don't have to watch to know that. Now, it's not right. a show-off thing. It's just the ability that you can because when you're in a kitchen and if you need to suddenly do something, you need to be looking around while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it is, But it is very mindful. At no moment is my thought off of where that, the feel of the steel against my knuckles is always there even if I'm talking to a person. So it's, a, it's an interesting form of dance of mindfulness because you're very mindful about wanting to keep your fingertips attached. Right, exactly. And that's such a wonderful example and such a great visual. You know, there's that great uh, Buddhist Zen saying, chop wood, carry water. And it's in the doing. And like you talked about, you know, the many, many, many times of doing, which is the, the, the image of the chopping wood and the carrying water. You do something over and over and over again, not caught up in the end result, but really mindful of the doing of it, of the beingness of what you're doing. You know, you're in the moment. You're so really present with the very thing that you're doing that somebody who's watching you after you've done it for so many times, it's fascinating because that person, like yourself, the way you describe the chopping of the onion, you've done that so many times that you can literally take your eyes off of what you're doing, and I agree with you, it's not in a cavalier way, it's just that you've practiced it for so long, you've so been in the present doing it, that you can take it to the next level of trust, 
you know, and that's really wonderful to watch. And it's kind of fun. If you're not in an actual kitchen, if you're not in a real <laughs> cooking kitchen where you're producing food for 500 people, it's fun. <laughs> in the kitchen, it's, you know, boy, it's just a train. It's a locomotive mm-hmm. just careening down on you at any moment. Right. I'm it's sure. quite exciting. Um, now we're going to jump slightly because we have to stop talking about that. We'll do another show sometime talking about the food world. Happy to. Okay. Um, what was your inspiration for writing Live True? My inspiration for writing Live True was the the passing of my sister Esther. And for anybody who's read my first book, says who she was the inspiration for that book as well. I had a sister, an older sister. I have I had two. I now have one, and also an older brother. And both my sister Esther and my brother Daniel have passed away. And although their spirit lives very strongly in my heart. Um, Esther, who suffered from mental illness, she had passed away. And when she passed away, for anybody who has ever Mm -hmm. lost a loved one, it puts everything in perspective, or at least it did for me. And her passing really brought me even that much deeper into the present. And it had me looking at time and the preciousness of time and the preciousness of our lives more than I ever had before. You know, as a mindfulness uh, practitioner, having the awareness of, of the value of the present moment, it got even way more heightened by her loss and inspired me to write this book, which I wrote when I was in the active throes of grieving, which I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. Um, really to elucidate, you know, the value, the importance, the preciousness of life. And if we don't value the moments of our life, we are going to miss so much out of our life that we will never get back again. So that really was my my greatest inspiration was my sister Esther. Mm-hmm. And this leads me to a question I was going to ask later, but it, it fits so well now. Is there an opportunity in painful moments? Very much so. And I talk a lot about that. I talk about that, you know, we don't want to hurry those painful moments along, which again brings us to mindfulness that oftentimes we, we're very present when things are going our way. We're very present when the moments of our life are going exactly as we want them to. But as we know, and as the Buddha said, there is great suffering in life too. Do you know, it's not just about the good moments. And really what I wanted to offer up to my reader in Live True was that even in the painful moments, those are the moments that sometimes have the greatest teachings for us. And if we don't rush through those moments, if we don't hurry them along, we can get so much from them. And what I say is that is where the sweet spot is. It's on the other side of the difficulty. It's when we get through the pain, when we get through the difficulty of that moment, that can, we can really reap the benefits of what that moment has to give us. And... So we can use this as a, so would you sit, I have too many thoughts at once. I'm not being mindful. No, I just have too many thoughts at once. So you just have uh, an awareness it, that you have so many thoughts going on. That's right. There it is. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. That's good. Is that, so you take this painful moment because I think a lot of people have a painful moment and then want to avoid it or they just stuff it away. I've had this in my past. I don't now, but I've had this in the past. And we just stuff that away and stuff that away. And you just sort of, you have a box in your mind where you put painful things and you just want to never address them. Mm -hmm. Well, like as we were talking about earlier with PTSD, when, when troops or soldiers are in an experience that's either painful or frightening or terrifying or horrific, they stuff that over there. Because mm-hmm. they can't in the in that moment they can't have the time to go oh my god I'm so sad or I'm something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Do you then take it into meditation and let it process out and wave over you, or how do you how do we take how do we take advantage of that opportunity? 
You know, I have something in Live True. I talk a lot about the different time frames. You know, I talk about the past, the present, and the future, and that we really most often live in these other time frames, the past, which has come and gone, or the future, which isn't here yet. And we have a harder harder time staying present for reasons that are because, you know, they can be very painful for us to stay in the present moment. And when we allow ourselves to stay in that pain, we get stuck in it, do you know? And I really talk about it's not about minimizing what has happened to us because our pain is very real for us, and it's really important to acknowledge the pain that we have experienced. But if we keep it stuck in the present, then we get stuck in the, in the pain, if you will. And what I offer up to the reader is even a meditation called Memory in Present Time Meditation so that you don't continue to always go back to the past and relive the painful memories that you've experienced. Again, it's important to acknowledge. And if you want to talk about PTSD or anybody who's experienced trauma, that is real. That is very real for them. And acknowledging it is very important. But you can also bring that painful memory into the present moment. And you can shine a light on it so that you don't have to be the effect of it. And what I present really is a meditation so that you can bring a more present moment awareness to what that pain is and change it for yourself. Do you know, to know that who you are today isn't who you were yesterday and who you're going to be tomorrow isn't who you are today. And that's the beauty is that you don't have to be held hostage by the painful memories or the traumas that you've experienced. You can change your life today. And you're not going to experience the same trauma today and or tomorrow. What you're experiencing is the memory of that trauma. And that's what we want to understand, Mm. that we don't have to be at the effect of that memory. That's so powerful. Um, In my other past, uh, I'm a master herbalist and had a herb store and a national mail order catalog in the 80s. Yes, that's how old I am, in the 80s. (laughs) And... I saw people who would come in, and I still see this today because I practice privately, who have an attachment and they keep reaffirming that, what, what would now be called a wounding. Mm-hmm. And they, they constantly reaffirm that. And I think it was when I interviewed Bruce Lipton several times. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were talking, it was the aha moment to me of that our cells are listening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And systemically, if you keep reaffirming something, I, I understand I'm not diminishing people's experience of a trauma, but that thing that you just said about it being a moment or, a, or, or what did you just say that was really so, that's so perfect to me about that, that people well, keep, the keep memory reaffirming of the memory yeah. of it is what lives on in the present because you're not being you're not you're not experiencing the trauma in the moment we're not experiencing our traumas in the moment of from our past we're experiencing the memory of that trauma and so what i what i my particular take on it and i and i really admire bruce lipton's work and epigenetics and i'm very enamored with the whole neuroscience you know breakthroughs and research that we're finding today about how we can literally change our brains and that our mm-hmm. cells are constantly regenerating so my particular angle on that is to bring it into present moment awareness so that you can literally change the memory of that trauma and you can you know bring new life into it and you can change the narrative if you will or the story around it and where mindfulness really comes into play here is the acknowledging of that trauma yes i suffered greatly you know yes i acknowledge that that suffering was and perhaps still is very real for me, now I can change it in the present time because that suffering isn't happening to me right now. The memory or the feeling state or the story or the narrative of that memory is what is most alive in me. And I have the power, because we're extraordinarily powerful, that we can experience transformation. You know, that's what's mind-blowing to me is that we can literally change the course of our life starting today. 
and begin a whole new pathway, which if you, you know, bring neuroscience into that, that is like creating the new neural pathways. And so we then begin to default to a new way of thinking as opposed to an old way of thinking or a past memory and bring it into present moment awareness, which is the consciousness of present time. And I realize I really want to ask, what is mindfulness? We've gotten we've dove we dove in so fast that I like, <laughs> what is mindfulness? What is that? There's so many definitions around mindfulness, and you know the most I guess the the the, the most user friendly definition of it would be that we are in the present moment. You know, it is the present moment awareness of who we are in the moment that exists right now and having an awareness of it and then having an awareness of all that exists around us in the moment that we are living in, if you will. So let's just start with the present moment definition. I'm in this moment right now with you. You're in this moment with me. We're having this conversation. I don't know about you, but I'm not thinking about anything else, and I'm not doing anything else. I'm I'm surrendered to the moment of which I'm in, and that is that I'm in this conversation with you, and that that is the most real moment for me right now. There isn't any other moment other than this moment, and that to me really is the best explanation I have for mindfulness. It means that we are aware that we are present, that we are here in the moment of now. And there's, you know, again, there's all these other definitions of it. And I think that if we, you know, basically not that it's it's mystifying, but I think that if we keep it within that context, if you will, that it means being present. We now know what it is. Now we need to understand the impl- the, the implementing of it. How do I stay present? How do I practice mindful awareness? How do I keep myself in the present and be aware of when I start to slip back into a time frame that no longer exists, which is the past, or when I get ahead of myself and I start to project onto a time frame that does not exist yet called the future. And what we do is we begin to develop this awareness which makes us much more cognizant of when we're not in the moment. You know, for me, I love to talk about mindfulness, but where the work really begins is in the practicing of it. That is really what it's about. It's like, how do we practice mindfulness? And like anything else, like riding a bike or anything that we do for the first time, it is a skill, it is a quality that is inherent in each of us like having kindness or having compassion or goodness. And we don't tell ourselves from the minute we wake up, oh, I'm kind, oh, I have compassion, oh, I'm good. We have those qualities that are inherent in us. We just need to practice them more, if you will. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about live radio like this is that it's not there there is there is not a rehearsal there's not a you and I have never met we haven't talked bef- before the show and yet we're having this really wonderful luscious mindful conversation <laughs> in real time that mm-hmm. can't be edited this isn't like oh take 2 no this is live <laughs> we're really doing this right and That's i exactly really right. i like that that's very uh, you know, this is a, a a fun activity for me. I mean, a real a real source of pleasure, and right. I love that live part. Versus, mm-hmm. as I say, you know, films where it's like, oh, I don't like that. That was off. Do that again. No, nope, right. we're exactly. here. This is now. Right. We're doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we live our really lives. Wonderful. We live our lives. It's these are live moments. All of our, all of the moments of our lives are live. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's it's shocking. like if you, you know, taking what you said, Richard. You know, we have this. We made a date to be live together. Right. You know, we we made this date to do this, but. 
think about it. We live every moment of our life in the live moment of now, and we forget it. We just, we just, we're not even aware of that. Oh, I'm in this moment right now. It is the most real moment that there is because I'm most alive in it. So therefore, I'm in the present moment. Hello. You know, we just don't remind ourselves of that. And we're so busy doing what we do. We're so busy in the doing that we don't stop and remind ourselves, hi, hi there, self. I'm in the moment of now. How am I showing up in this moment? Who am I in this moment? <laughs> it's it's almost as if we forget about the, wow, look at that, I'm here. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, well, how did you know that what? happen? We're laughing because it's it's so logical that we realize how much we don't even remind ourselves of this reality. We get so caught up and... You know, with the awareness that we're living in a time, you know, you, you started the conversation talking about, you know, if we were cavemen and women, what would we be doing then? Well, we're in the 21st century. There's, we're being blitzkrieged with, with so much social media and technology, and we're more busy than we've ever been before. And this is why mindfulness is so perfect for the times that we're in right now, because it gives us the opportunity to stop and, and remind ourselves like, oh, hey, I'm here right now. And this moment is really pretty cool and pretty great. And I should really be grateful that I'm alive one more moment. Do you know, we, we need those mindful reminders. And that's what mindfulness does. As I say in my book, it gives you a little push or a little nudge or sometimes a very big shove to remind us like where where are you going what what are you doing how come you're stepping out of the moment what what do you think is going to be better than this moment that you're in right now so these are these are great <laughs> yeah. rem- mindfulness is i consider mindfulness our consciousness it's my way of mm-hmm. uh, personally for me that's the that's the way in which i equate them, that mindfulness is having a conscious awareness of the moment of which you are in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll go back to chopping the onion for a moment, is I can, not exactly a guarantee, but I can pretty much almost guarantee it, that if when you're chopping that onion and you're looking around to see what somebody is or is not doing or they're cooking that too much or that pan's too hot or not hot enough or all the things that you're monitoring as you're training others and just watching what they're doing, because as a chef, you're responsible for everything that goes out into the dining room. Not the person who's necessarily cooking it, but the person who's watching the kitchen, the lead chef is responsible for all the food produced, period. If your boss comes up, you're responsible. It's your responsibility for why that didn't go out right. So back to the onion. I can almost guarantee you that as you're chopping that onion and looking around, if you're not mindful, although again, this is a a culinary workshop here. If you're not mindful (laughs) while you're chopping that onion and looking around, you will more than likely nick yourself or remove part of an appendage. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, and I'm, and, and, and I'm sure many many chefs can attest to that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And the the beauty of mindfulness, I want to also add to what I was saying prior, is that mindfulness heightens our awareness, but it also heightens our our senses. So let's just say, you know, again, not in a cavalier, arrogant way, but you have to <clears throat> you have to really take in much more around you so that you know, you're doing something and you're very present in what you're doing, but you are mindfully aware of the fact that maybe somebody just fell that's in the room with you Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. knowing that something's happening to the left of you or to the right of you, but that it starts to sharpen your concentration to such a degree that you really become almost like a bit of a wizard you know, and that's the beauty of mindfulness. It, it, it's, I call it the gift that keeps on giving. And the more you develop this, this skill, this strength, this capacity that we have inherently, it's amazing what we can start to take in. It just widens the lens. It's like taking a camera and looking through the lens and you start to see this 360 degree of life in a way that you didn't see before. And I love that thorough quote. It's not 
what we're looking at that matters. It's what we see in the moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've had the privilege of watching Ansel Adams. Again, this is how old I am. Um, watching Ansel Adams take a photograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ansel Adams, for those that don't know, is a renowned photographer. Just look up his name and you'll see amazing photography. Oh, and to watch him, and to watch him study, I I would say study, but it was softer than that. He would look at a scene, and and there were times when he would go out and watch an area he was going to photograph. Let's say he was doing a landscape, <clears throat> and he would go out and watch it for a day, literally, just hang out and watch the light for a day. And watch how the light changed and how it shifted things and how he was trying to find for him what would be the perfect moment to take a photograph. So he would take a whole day sometimes just watching. Mm -hmm. And then he'd go back the following day and know the moment at which he wanted to capture that that image. Mm -hmm. And it always always seemed – he was gruff. I was going to say a little gruff. No, he was plain old gruff. But I think mm-hmm. it was because he was hyper-focused. He was being incredibly in each moment mm-hmm. watching him. Because while he was doing it, he was gruff, but he was very zen. He was very right. at ease. He That's wasn't cranky about it. Down. He wasn't anything. He wasn't hurried. He was completely in each and every moment. And when he saw it, it's almost like you saw the light bulb go off over his head. And he'd come back the next day and take the photograph at the moment he wanted. Maybe he'd take two or three um, for those that, again, don't know his work, he was a large sheet film photographer, so that meant he had perhaps an 8 by 10 piece of film in a sheet, uh, in a housing, in a holder that was glass. So it's not like you're with digital photography today where you might take 20 shots in a second. This was one piece of film in a camera, in a giant camera, and he'd put it in, and maybe he'd take a couple of shots, but it's only two or three. It's not a couple hundred. So he mm-hmm. would contemplate everything until the moment he found it, and then he'd come back and do that. And it was an amazing thing to be part of and to watch, because it was like an artist painting, but for him, landscape was his painting, and he would capture it at that moment. And it was, right. it was truly that's stunning. That's the beauty. And that's the beauty of, you know, someone like him, you know, or an artist who captures the moment. And that's what they do. I mean, sometimes it's painstaking efforts and the studying of nature. Do you know, that's what I, I mean, I love, you know, things related to nature. I love National Geographic. I love the, the photographers. I love the work that they do because what they do is they're studying nature and they're very present in their studying of it, the way you describe the Ansel Adams you know, process that he went through, in order to capture what we see as a moment. Boom. That's the moment. That's the exquisite moment that they capture in a photograph that just takes our breath away. Do you know? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really what we're, what we're, you know, we get to benefit from the way in which they capture the moment. Some of them even put their lives in great danger you know, some of these National Geographic photographers, because they have to take such a deep dive into the moment of which they are going to capture. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is amazing. And which leads me to, you use a phrase, uh, a term, life-gazing. And that seems to be, to me, sort of what... Ansel did or other photographers I've hung out with do is you're, you're walking around and you're seeing things like I had you glance at my Instagram feed. Yeah, and for me, that by is, the way. Thank you. That is my, that's my walking meditation. When I mm-hmm. have a camera in my hand, I've had a camera in my hand since I was in junior high. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that is my meditation. I go out and when I'm doing photography, I'm, not exactly. I'm in a sort of a zone where I'm walking around and I see something and then I watch it for a, a moment or two or sometimes it's sometimes I just see something and I take that picture fairly quickly mm-hmm. or I see a, a light, uh, particularly when I'm photographing flowers, the light is just right at that moment and I know I only have a couple of moments to capture what I want. Mm-hmm. 
and life gazing. Talk about life gazing because I think that is that's really a wonderful thing. Thank you, and I really love it too, Richard. And I, you know, really why I I brought it into the book as an idea, as a something for for all of us to you know implement into our lives, if you will, is because it's available to us at all times. And again, when we're not in the present moment, we take a lot of those moments for granted, and we aren't seeing what we're looking at, as Thoreau talked about. So you're talking about making a concerted effort and taking the camera and really interfacing with nature because it's exquisite. And there's so many stupendous moments to capture, whether you actually take a photograph of it or not. And the reason why I introduced this concept of life gazing is because we have an opportunity to do it many times throughout the day, but we don't. And um, what I really want to say to people is that, you know, take that moment, you know, look out your window. I work a lot from home and I write books and I will stop what I'm doing and I'll go outside and I'll look at the nature that's around me, you know, to basically really refuel, if you will. I'm, I'm getting the energy by what I'm, what I'm uh, focusing on what I'm feasting my eyes on. And life-gazing came to me really by the story that I tell in the book, which was stopped at a red light. Now, if you think about just the metaphor of that, we're stopped at a red light because we're forced to. And we don't really want to, but we have to. That's the way traffic flows. It's green light, red light. You know, if it was just green light all the way and we didn't stop, who knows what would happen. So we... We have to stop. And the stop, the pause, if you will, is an important one. And oftentimes at a red light, we're, you know, especially if you're in, in traffic, you're waiting for that light to change. And that's why people bolt the second the light turns green. Well, I decided to take that however long the light, red light lasts to really look at what I was seeing. So I started to watch people that were crossing the street. And I really set my gaze on them. It happened to me again yesterday. I was at a red light, and I saw a woman walking, and I counted. She was holding a baby, and she had five children with her. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, look at this woman. She's got five children that all looked under the age of 10. And it touched my heart to look at her. How many of those moments do we not really catch? So life gazing is taking that moment, you know, let's let's count, let's find out how long a red light really lasts, to really look at what you're seeing and really see it, or step away from your desk, or go outside, you know, do something. And even if you're indoors, I talk about you can, if you have an animal, you know, cats wash themselves. They, they wash, wash between each and every toe. You know, set your gaze on that. Look at something around your house if you can't go outside. If it's raining, look out the window. Watch the rain pitter-patter against your window. There are so many things we can do, whether we're stopped at a red light, whether we step outside, whether we're on a plane, whether we're in any form of transportation, Take a moment to really be in that moment and life gaze. Yes. I have a kitchen window that looks out toward a hummingbird feeder, and the hummingbirds can always get my attention. Beautiful. I I love hummingbirds. We have quite a rapport. I have some hummingbirds that will fly up to my face. And and they're quite aggressive. They're quite aggressive, yeah. but once you get once you get used to the, that, they will do that to you, and they're not going to hurt you. They just are like, "Hey, <laughs> I don't know." That's right. They always look like they're they always look a little cranky, but it's just the way they approach. But once you, I grew up with uh, my family. My mother was quite a gardener, so I grew up gardening. Mm-hmm. And once you get used to that, you, they will come up and look at you like, "Hey, that's my flower. Get out of here," or whatever it is. They're really. <laughs> It, uh, the the Wicholi Indians uh, who do amazing artwork, uh, string work and wax work, have say of the hummingbirds that they're one of the messengers of the gods, mm-hmm. and they've always felt. <clears throat> I mean, imagine having your face in flowers all day. What an amazing right. 
place to be. What an emo- amazing moment to have. All day long, Beautiful. they have that moment. Um, right, exactly. So I'm, I'm quite fond of the, you know, every as you would say, every moment is an opportunity. Every and, moment is an opportunity. And, and we mustn't keep, you know, giving ourselves excuses as why not to do something. You know, that's really what we do is we, we you know, procrastinate or we come up with an excuse as to why we we don't do that. And I feel we're missing out from some of the most glorious moments of our lives when we don't take those moments and really gaze our sight at what we're seeing, which, again, is what I call life gazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have, You have said, I've heard you say or read, because I've studied so much that it's all a blur, <laughs> that we are all Buddhas in the making. What does that mean? Well, you know, that might not resonate for everybody because it may not be something they might look upon that as, as a religious um, a notion or idea, and I don't mean it in that way. Um, I speak of Buddha, you know, Buddha, which means enlightened one. You know, none of us knew the Buddha, but we can hear many stories of the Buddha and the Buddha's path of awakening. You know, I consider this life a path of awakening. And so if I, if I look at that, that this is an opportunity to awaken in each and every moment of our life, then we have the opportunity to become more aware, to become more conscious. And that is really what enlightenment means. Do you know, it's not reaching the end point. You know, Buddha, the story of Buddha is that he became an enlightened being. Do you know? So when I say we are Buddhas in the making, we are... People that are on this path of awakening each and every moment of our life. And that I also talk about in Live True that enlightenment isn't just a final destination. There are many enlightened moments that we can experience on the journey of awakening. Do you know? So I use Buddha as the metaphor, if you will, that we, each and every one of us, has an opportunity to awaken, to become more conscious, to become more awake, to become more enlightened in the moment of which we are in, that the Buddha represents that. And this leads to, or will this lead to learning to love ourselves? I think this is along the pathway, learning to love ourselves. Well, this is a two-part question, and I'll give them to you both because it, it flows together for me. You talk about learning to love ourselves in Live True, and then you also talk about showing up as the real me. Does this, can we show up as the real me without lo- loving ourselves? I think we, mindfulness helps us show up in the moments of our lives as our most authentic self. You know, I talk about mindfulness as it not only helps keep us in the moment, but it makes us more aware of who we are in the moment. And we can ask ourselves those questions. Am I being real in this moment? Am I being who I truly am, the true essence of who I am in this moment? And am I accepting myself in this moment with love? You know, that's another definition of mindfulness, being in the present moment with non-judgment and acceptance. What I like to call the cherry on top is with self-love, you know. So these are the many stages that we arrive at being present in the moment and that we are learning how to be more self-accepting and learning how to love ourselves better because we can be really hard on ourselves. Do you know, we are very, very hard on ourselves, as we know. You know, each of us has the inner critic to varying degrees, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, how much are we at the effect of what we tell ourselves? So showing up as the most authentic self, I feel, is really the, the aspiration that I want to show up in each and every moment of my life as my true self. You know, why would I want to be anyone other than who I really am? But, you know, we can forget who we are along the way on the life journey, There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of, you know, detours that we take, if you will, that we forget our true nature, that we forget who we really are. And, you know, as Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk, said, it's it's bringing ourselves back home again. 
it's the journey is bringing ourselves back home again to who we really are. You know, I believe it's the, the, the spirit, the essence of who we are that we came into the world as, do you know, in the, in the birth state, if you will. Mm-hmm. This is a slight jump, but it seems to fit right here. Would you talk to us about your release and replace technique? I think this is wondrous. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, for bringing that up because, it, you know, here's what I'd also like to talk about is that the best way to do all of this in, in, and, and to really come to know it is experiential. Do you know? So we can talk about all this stuff, and it sounds fabulous and fantastic, and, you know, these are great ideas and concepts, but what, where it becomes much more powerful is when we start to really experience it. And, you know, the release and replace technique, which is, I originated that in my first book, Says Who, is I wanted people to really experience what it means to let go of a thought that does not serve their well-being. You know, I don't like to write books that just sort of um, only motivate you. You know, I'm all for motivation, but I want you to try this out yourself to see how it works for you because there's no better way to know whether something works or doesn't unless you try it. So it's a technique where you... Write down, and you could do this daily. I say take one thought, one negative thought that you have. It may be a thought that just popped up into your mind, or it's a thought that's been really annoying and it's followed you around for a long time in your life, and it's kind of wreaked havoc for you, and it makes you feel not that great about yourself. You know, without going into the whole says who method, because it's you know there's a lot to talk about there, but this, the, the release and replace technique is something that you can actually do and that you write down a thought that is negative or fear-based or that you just don't even like. You know, as I said, it's annoying. Hmm. It gets in the way. So you write it down and you crumple up that piece of paper. I've done this in so many workshops. I did this at a... Um, big uh, seminar for 250 young entrepreneurs. And when I say write down that negative thought and crumple up that piece of paper and then throw it, they threw that piece of paper with so much force. Like many of those little crunched pieces of paper like flung across the room. And I say, okay, so that's now in that piece of paper crumpled up on the floor. Do you want to pick up that piece of paper and keep that thought that you just basically discarded. And they're like, no, absolutely not. So that they can really understand what it means to let something go that you don't want and that you don't like. And then I say, now write down its positive counterpart. And they write down that positive counterpart to that negative thought. And I say, do you want to crumple that piece of paper up and throw it across the room? And I get a resounding no. And it's so logical that it's almost sometimes laughable that we feel compelled to hold on to a thought that we don't like, that's negative, that's undermining, that's sabotaging, and get attached to it. As I say, you know, in a mindfulness, in a meditation context, you know, thoughts come and go in the mind as we meditate. You know, thoughts don't hold on to us, we hold on to them. So if you take that concept with releasing a negative thought and replacing it with its positive counterpart, that's the thought that you can really allow to occupy your mind. It's a choice that we make daily, moment by moment, thought by thought. And a lot of people don't want to accept it because it's just too easy for them. <laughs> They're like, yeah, and I also call that the yeah buts. When people go, yeah, but, you know... But, you know, those negative thoughts, I'm like, yes, I know. We have a lot of negative thoughts that occupy our mind. What do we do with them? How do we work with them? And the release and replace technique is a wonderful technique to have you experience what it means to let a thought go, the actual releasing of it, if you will, and the replacing of it with something that's useful to you. So you create this wonderful vacuum by throwing that away, <clears throat> and you replace something in that vacuum that's positive or a blessing. And it's, it, yes. I mean, 
Yes, okay. Richard, and I want to say this is a prelimin this is a this is a very sort of basic exercise, if you will, and the goal really is to achieve this just mentally. But you no longer have to do it, you know. I mean it's it's mm-hmm. a physical exercise for those that you know, and the real the really the benefit of it is it to show you that when you throw that piece of paper, the energy around that experience. Like you throw that piece of paper because you really want to. You really want to get rid of that thought. Do you know? But you sometimes need help to do that. And mm-hmm. with time and practice, you will be able to identify and discern between a, what I call a useful thought and a useless thought and how those, those two types of thinking occupy, can occupy the mind and how to also do what I say, curate thoughts in your mind that are useful for you and that serve your well-being and that you'll start to see the diminishing of the thoughts that serve no useful purpose. I love that. That's that's great. And we're going to go just a couple minutes long because I have to ask this question. It's going to lead it ties so to the beginning. How do we know when we how do we know we're there in terms of <laughs> mindfulness? How do we know? Is there like a bell go off or does Tinkerbell drop in and go, you're there? How do we know? (laughs) Well, you know, and I love it. Such a good question to end on. Um, Take things that you do. For example, are you someone who has ever watched a sunset or a sunrise before? I'm sure you have. You know, Mm -hmm. take what you do. And, and look at that as a way in which you practice mindfulness because we really are practicing it daily. We might not be aware that we're doing it. We just throw away those moments. You know, we don't even identify them as mindfulness, if you will. And I wanted to share a, a, a quick story, if I will, if I can, with um, something that I did with a young adult recently, a, a girl of 17 years old who they, were, they brought mindfulness into her school, and I just recently brought uh, mindfulness into a school. And, you know, it, it's not always easy to get the attention of young adults because they are blitzkrieg with social media right now. And she was very dismissive of the whole idea of mindfulness. She seemed rather bored by it. She kind of rolled her eyes like, uh-huh, yeah, they teach it in my school, like big deal, who cares kind of thing. <laughs> and I happened to be sitting with her at a dining table and she was eating ice cream. And I thought, ooh, this is a great way for me to pull her into the experience of mindfulness. And so I said to her, you're eating ice cream right now, right? And she said, "Mm mm-hmm. And I said, well, okay, so how does it taste? And she started to giggle. And she said, it tastes really good. And I said, you know, do do you like? you know, one particular ice cream flavor more than the other. She goes, no, I really, really like this one. And I go, yeah, and so it tastes really good. And she kept agreeing with me. And I said, "Um, would you rather be eating anything else right now? And she's like, no, no, I don't. This This is really yummy. And I go, are you thinking about anything else while you're eating your ice cream? And she really giggled at that because she had an idea that was presented to her that she'd never thought of before. And that was that she really wasn't thinking of anything else other than eating her ice cream. And I said, do you want to hurry it along or do you really want to, you know, savor each bite? And she said, I, I just would like to, you know, yes, I want to eat it all, but I, you know, I can take my time. And I knew that I had her in the experience of a mindful awareness of what she was doing that she was enjoying. You know, so often we rush through our food. We hurry that we don't notice the hummingbirds. We don't notice what we see at a red light. We don't life gaze. We don't take these moments and savor them. And so when you say, how would someone know, what I would ask you is to think of the things that you do, whether it's eating or going out and taking the photographs that you do, Richard, that you have on your Instagram, or the moments that I like to capture and savor. And remind yourself of when you're hurrying along in that moment. And when you have the awareness that you're trying to hurry that moment along, catch it. And the minute you start to catch it, 
<clears throat> you're going to become much more mindfully aware of when you're hurrying those moments along. And that's when you can start implementing more mindfulness in your life. So begin with mm-hmm. the things that you like. Begin with the things that you like doing and, str- and try and stay present in them, like I was asking this young woman to do, to really stay present with what she was doing that she was enjoying. That's wonderful. I'm going to stop because that could be a whole other conversation. So I'm going to stop now. That was really great. Thank you. Uh, where would you like to fi- have people find more information about you and Live True? They can check out my website, com, and that's where I have a lot of what I'm doing and what's going on, and we'll have our interview on there. And uh check in with the calendar of events that I'm doing, and that's the best way. And my social media handles are all my name, or Nadrich, and that's the best way to find me. And, and, you know, if you want to order Live True, you can certainly find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Wonderful. Is there an audible version of this? It just got... It just got recorded, so it's very Great. soon to be released. Yes, thank you for, for asking Great. that. Thank you. I'm a big fan of Audible. I love being in I nature know. and listening to books at the same time. It's one of my yes. favorites. Yes, I'm excited <laughs> to have it out because there are a lot of people that feel that way. Right, great. Well, thank you so much. We could go on for a whole other hour right now. I know. Um, thank just talking you, about Richard. ice cream. And eating. That could be a whole show just right there. Um, thank you so much, Aura. That was fabulous. And thank everybody you, have a thank you again. And everybody have a great rest of the week and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.